hello everyone, wherever you are, whatever your time zone, welcome to this new episode of Perspectives. So today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our first class guest, Ravin Jesuthasan. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Ravin. Ravin Jesuthasan is the global leader of Mercer's Transformation Services business. He's a global recognized expert, thought leader, futurist, and author of several best-selling books. His most recent work without jobs. He has led multiple research efforts on the global workforce, the emerging digital economy, the rise of artificial intelligence, and the transformation of work. Ravin has led numerous research projects for the World Economic Forum, including many groundbreaking studies on the transformation of work and the global workforce. Ravin is a regular participant and presenter at the World Economic Forum's annual meetings in Davos and member of the Forum Steering Committee of Work and Employment. Ravin, thank you very much for accepting this interview. I feel honored to have you here in this podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Erica. It's lovely to be here with you. And thanks for the opportunity to catch up. No, thanks to you. So, uh, Robin, we are living times of unprecedented change. Um, companies know that not only to survive, but really to thrive, they need to find ways to become faster, simpler, uh, more flexible, closer to the consumer. Uh, and of course, one of the answers uh, on how to make this happen, well, is uh, becoming digital, no? digital transformation. Uh, today, 92% of companies around the world have already started some kind of some sort of digital transformation. Uh, so we know that this is happening. No, this is our reality. Uh, but not really everyone understands what's the impact of this. Uh, can you tell us, no one better than you, can you tell us uh, what's your perspective on this? How does AI, automation, robots will impact the future of work? Yeah, Erica, um, I'm happy to share some thoughts. So um, uh, you mentioned my most recent book, Work Without Jobs, um, but my previous book, Reinventing Jobs, that was uh, co-authored with John Boudreau, and that was published by the MIT, by the Harvard Business Review Press. Um, we actually looked at how companies can get to the optimal combinations of humans and automation. And one of the things that we know, Erica, is, um, and John and I illustrated this in that book with about 130 case studies, yeah. is when companies lead with technology, when they lead with digital technology, what they often end up seeing is a kind of a binary relationship between humans and machines. They see where the, they, they look for where the machine can substitute the human. And in fact, you may remember in Work Without Jobs, the case study that we have in the book that runs through all the chapters is of a large uh, global retail organization that introduced automation. And instead of getting the planned savings that they expected, it actually resulted in much higher labor cost because they didn't fully account for all all of the new skills that would be required to make the technology successful, what the, the change in the work to integrate that technology and connect it to other parts of their distribution system. Mm -hmm. And so what John and I wrote about is that when, when you lead with, with work, when you lead with the work, the current and the future work, you see a very different relationship between the work and, and the automation. When you lead with the work and you analyze the work, you see where the highly repetitive rules-based work can be substituted by automation. 
you see where creativity, empathy, care, concern, critical thinking um, can be augmented by AI and automation, making that human super productive. And you also see where the presence of automation actually creates space for new human work because it substitutes some activities, creating space in a job, or where the presence of automation creates the demand for new human skills. And so when you lead with the automation, you see where the technology can substitute versus augment versus transform and create. Um, So a much more nuanced set of outcomes rather than the more binary, maybe more um, fatalistic view of the machines are coming for our jobs. Exactly. Robin, that that, that you just mentioned is, uh, I, I absolutely love it because uh, when we think about what's happening in the, in, the, in the future of work and all these, I think it's 375 million jobs will disappear. It, it gives us goosebumps, no? And, and immediately we think that, uh, oh my God, well, at least this is what I think <laughs> now all the time is what is going to happen with all these people that are going to displace, be, being displaced by, by robots and technology uh, but also uh, I think really positive when I think that yes many jobs will disappear but also many jobs will be created so if you see uh, the numbers the opportunity is better than or it's bigger than the than the loss no so uh, the work that you do uh, Robin for me is super inspiring because what I see uh, after reading your book, uh, my thoughts were in terms of this is not just a recipe for organizations to become future fit and to achieve uh, business results. Uh, this is something bigger. No, this this actually is purpose led. No, uh, the, the the concepts that you that you propose in your book, uh, they they are really world changing no uh, and 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 it's very positive not to think on how can we change the way we work to make this a better and bright future for everyone so can you tell us a little bit more about this uh Robin, the concept of democratization of of work that for me is is is, is the like core of your book can you tell us a little bit more about this yeah absolutely and i want to build on your previous question erica because You know, the two big forces that are shaping the future of work are digitalization and the democratization of work. So digitalization, not just automation, as we talked about a second ago, but also technologies like what we're using now with Zoom and Teams that allow us to collaborate and connect much more seamlessly. And then this idea of the democratization of work. And what we mean by the democratization of work is our ability to increasingly decouple work from its traditional confines of space, time, and structure. Our ability to distribute work anywhere in the world at a fraction of the cost, at a fraction of the time, give access to that work to talent that we might not have traditionally considered or talent that has traditionally been marginalized um, and increasingly make that work available. And so what it does is that by that democratization, it has both a good side and an insidious side to it, right? For the talent that has traditionally been protected and given access in many parts of the developed world, for example, that talent now is going to be in a a hyper-competitive environment. But for the talent that has been marginalized, um, where perhaps they've had the skills, but maybe not the degree 
Um, they now have access as companies remove degree requirements, as companies look to tap into the skills and availability of labor in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So this democratization of work is at least as powerful a force as is the um, digitalization, as we talked about. And the combination of the two, Erica, the multiplier effect is what is truly accelerating the future of work. And I often say in my various speeches and to my clients, you know, if in the two years of COVID, these two forces have probably pulled forward the future of work, um, something more like 20 years in the last two years. Definitely, Ryan. And what I uh, admire of uh, your work and the work of your uh, colleague no, is that you started writing about this. I I remember looking at an MIT um, paper. No, these ideas were already there even before COVID. No, so how how visionary and how accurate it was. No, really, no, to to start talking about this, and uh, this makes me think. Robin, about how when I when I speak with CEOs about the, the digital transformation, no, it it comes by the hand the agile transformation. No, everyone is speaking about digital and agile transformation. And there's a reason why, no? Everyone wants, as I was mentioning, uh, to to make their company simpler, faster, uh, closer to the consumer. Uh, but when I speak to them, they see ag agility or agile transformation only from the, let's say, the the digital part of the or the changes in the structure, no? How how they are eliminating hierarchies, eliminating silos by creating this network of teams. But they speak little, very little about talent agility and talent agility, at least from what I see. And I, I think we share this vision. Talent agility is like the spinal cord of the business agility. No. So um, I remember when I first read your I think it was your first book where you speak about gig economy. No. And, and how this can bring all sorts of possibilities for companies. Can, can you tell us more, a little bit more about this, how, how the, the future of work is changing in terms of the job schemes and how can this what's the impact on 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 the business uh, of, of, on all of this? Yeah. And Erica, I 100% agree with you. You know, talent agility is really at the heart of the agile operating model. And, and you know, thank you for uh, referencing Lead the Work. Actually, it was my second book. Um, but what is important about that book is, um, so that second book was Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment. The third book, as I mentioned, was Reinventing Jobs. And the fourth book was Work Without Jobs. Um, and all three of those books have a very common theme that runs through them. So Lead the Work, as you mentioned, explored how work, this was back in 2015, mm -hmm. how work was increasingly moving beyond the organizational boundary to gig talent, to third-party alliances, partners, etc., and moving beyond the traditional confines of employment. And, and what we see, my colleagues at Mercer have done a lot of work um, on this topic, is we're seeing... We saw a bit of a dip in the amount of work being done by gig talent in, in, during COVID, but it has rapidly recovered and is accelerating even more. We just did a survey of CEOs and CFOs, and all of them expect to tap into gig talent increasingly more. You know, I don't know if they make the connection, Erica, to your point, between gig workers versus agility, yeah. but they certainly see the cost savings, right, and maybe the flexibility, but I'm not sure they 
connected into a broader construct, right, of, you know, sort of an agile operating model. Um, and so that second book explored work beyond the boundary. The third, as I mentioned, explored how automation is part of that agile e uh, equation. And then, and, and then this book essentially builds on those two ideas. And the big idea we had of work deconstruction as a core capability for organizations empowering the agile enterprise. And in Work Without Jobs, we take that idea and we talk about it as the critical foundation for increasing the agility of the organization to respond to threats like the pandemic, to respond to opportunities like, um, like digitalization and the democratization of work. And this book really delves into deconstruction and presents it as a fundamental element of a new work operating system, one that is based on tasks, activities, and skills, and not on jobs as the currency of work. I, I I love that concept of deconstruction of work, and it sounds easy <laughs> to do, but I, I know that it's not, not as easy as it sounds, right? So you spoke about something very, uh, I think, granular and uh, core in this in, in all this ecosystem that companies or or that you speak about now uh, the, this new operating model that it's skills not skills i don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about these levels of how can you deconstruct a job no uh, it sounds very very e not easy but it, very, it's it's practical and it's not no actually it has a science behind and a framework so how can you deconstruct a job what's inside of the jobs yeah so so let me maybe talk about the four principles that are underpinning the this uh the new book work without jobs <clears throat> and then i'll deep drill into how we think about deconstruction so the first principle is starting with the work the current and future tasks and activities and not the existing jobs so not how we organize those tasks and activities, right? And one of the things that we do in a lot of our consulting work, we've also, uh, my colleagues and I at Mercer, we've just released a tool that allows companies to do this is we can take job descriptions, we can take jobs from the Mercer job library or the ONET database and rapidly identify um, with the power of AI, all the tasks and activities that make up that job. So not not the sort of core job requirements, not the skills, but what is the work that needs to be done? And then we analyze the work to ask the question of, is the work repetitive? Is it rules-based? Is it, um, can it be done remotely versus needing to be done on site? Is the work mental versus physical? And then also asking the question of, what are we trying to solve for with each task? Are we trying to solve for, um, Uh, to minimize the number of errors. If you think of an airline pilot, much of the work that she might do is about eliminating errors, right? When I'm, when I'm flying the plane. But like a salesperson, his job may not be about error elimination. It's about incremental productivity. Um, and yet someone in an R&D function, her job may not be about incremental productivity. It's about making a breakthrough in my research, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the second part of deconstruction is us ensuring we are clear on what the outcome of that task is. And so this is what my co-author, John, and I have done a lot of research around. And that's at the heart of what we see as being a deconstruction. So, that, so that's step one. Step two, then, is to say, now that we've deconstructed, how do we get to the optimal combinations of humans and automation for each of these tasks and activities? 
where should automation substitute versus augment versus transform the work being done by the talent? Um, once we've figured out that optimal combination, the third principle is to ask the question, going back to your point about gig talent, yeah. what's the full array of ways in which humans can engage with the work? Should it be an employee in a job? Should it be an employee in an agile talent pool connecting with the work through a project? Should it be a gig worker? Should it be an alliance partner? Um, should it be talent from an internal talent marketplace? You know, what's the best way for the talent to do the work um, and to engage with the work? And then the fourth principle is how do we allow the talent to flow to work increasingly versus being limited to only thinking about work in silos? and thus increase the agility with which we connect talent to work. So four principles that we view as being at the heart of this new work operating system where skills and capabilities are the currency and, and as opposed to only the jobs being the currency. Thank you, Robin. That that's uh, that's super clear. No, these these principles. Uh, at least it makes it so uh, easy to understand. No, uh, because it's it's not it's not as easy as as we think. And um, you mentioned skills, and I'm going to uh, deep dive a little bit on this because we have. Sp spoken a lot on in terms of what are the benefits of all this for the organization no? and for the business and how can you um, unleash trapped capacity no and how can you bring technology and, and and that's amazing but also from the point of view of the of the people no uh, that are listening to us this is also bright in terms of uh, if we're looking at this um, deconstruction of work not happening, how are you getting prepared to this? No? And, and you mentioned that skills are becoming the currency. So uh, how important it is for us as human beings no, to be um, to have visibility of our own skills and how and what are the skills that we have? What are the skills that the, the organization or uh, the future of work is 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 demanding? And how can I um, how can I stay relevant? No. So um, what what can you say about this? What uh, if you if if you need to prepare for the future of work, not not in terms of uh, the organization, but as, as a person, no. Yeah. What what you would what do you need to do? What should you be thinking of? Yeah, you know, Erica, um, my co-author John and I have have been saying this now for about four or five years. At the heart of much of the future of work is our ability, either as individuals or leaders of business, to keep perpetually reinventing ourselves. You know, the old deal of I learn for 12 years or 18 years, I do for 30 years, and then I retire. You know, as we all know that deal is gone. Um, and, and the new deal is one of I learn, I do, I learn, I do. Maybe I take a sabbatical. And, you know, Linda Grattan writes about the 100-year life. Well, underpinning that 100-year life is a 70-year working life. And so our ability to keep reinventing ourselves has never been more important. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of work in uh, in looking at how automation is coming in. And I said to the CPA Association in Ireland a, a couple of years ago, the accounting profession is going to change more in the next five years than it has in the previous 500, in large part because of the proliferation of robotic process automation and AI and the changes in demand 
on the role of the auditor specifically by regulation, et cetera. And so, you know, the old deal where we went to school and in the United States paid a lot of money for a degree with the certainty that that degree would last as a 30 year career doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, the most now that degree may only keep you relevant for maybe seven or eight years. And so your ability to create space in your work to to keep upskilling and reskilling is going to be absolutely essential. And, you know, I <clears throat> the quote that has always stuck with me, Erica, uh, is from my favorite futurist, Alvin Toffler. Um, he wrote in his book, Future Shark, the, the illiterate of the 21st century. Um, will not be those who can't read and write. It will be those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And That's he good. wrote this in 1970. And I think it is so relevant so for relevant. the world we're in today. Absolutely, absolutely, Ramin. And um, something that I see in organizations today, it's, um, it's so relevant what you're saying, because I see all the time uh, companies looking for, for example, digital talent, no? Uh, they come to us as, as, as consultants and uh, Erica, help me, you know, find uh, software developers, help me find the UX UIs uh, or the agile talent. No, I need agile coach. I need scrum masters. And there's this, this the, all these, the, all these um, new roles, no, or, or all the skills that are required to do these roles are scarce, no? And, and then companies are just, Uh, stealing talent from one another. I'm just giving a tiny example now, but yes. this is happening in many different uh, types of industries and jobs, etc. And on the other side, I see many people saying, I don't have a job or I don't like the job that I do is becoming repetitive or I'm being laid off. So um, I think for me, it's like, um, uh, I don't know, it's like, come on, no? there, there, there's opportunity outside, but people are not looking at this opportunity. So what you are saying, I think it's it's super relevant. Uh, the skills that we have today, not necessarily are the skills that are going to be required in the future. And that's for sure. So how can we anticipate and start learning and uh, and and, no, and to, to, to become to become relevant? This is this is so important and, and we need it. It's not just for people to stay relevant, but the whole world needs this to happen because if not, it's going to be an enormous problem coming ahead, right? Yeah, absolutely right. So, Robin, thank you. Thank you very much for this interview. Uh, just one, one question, one, one last question. Uh, in your book, you mentioned many use cases on how this, can this all that we have just discussed can, can come to life. No, I used to work for Unilever for 13, 14 years. And my last years at Unilever, I saw how this started to become a reality and how Unilever was uh, opening the, the internal market. You know? And now uh, a person in marketing can be, uh, be part of a project from HR, an HR from project from digital. And it started, I'm speaking about six years or seven years ago, but it started Uh, opening its frontiers to geek talent, no? But these were more experiments, no? I, I think now they are way ahead of the curve. But can you give us an, a real example of a company of, uh, no, uh, uh, maybe maybe after COVID, no? How how all this um, decomposition of work and, and uh, no, it's becoming a reality? Yeah, you know, Erica, I, you know, I, I, I really... It, 
think Unilever is such a fantastic example. You know, I started working with Unilever in 2017 when Lena Nair was the CHRO. And, um, you know, that the HR team there with leadership charted such an amazing journey to driving more flexibility and agility. You know, what you started off this conversation with, right? How do we drive more talent agility, I think was really at the heart of that vision. And it is fantastic to see how that journey has evolved, to see the results that they've gotten during the pandemic. In similar fashion, you know, I also had the privilege of working with Genentech in San Fran- outside San Francisco. Genentech is the U.S. subsidiary of Roche. And that leadership team, Alexander, the CEO, and Cynthia, the CHRO, was so forward-looking in understanding that COVID, this is in April of 2020, April of 2020, they saw that COVID was not just a temporary thing that, you know, many of us were thinking, oh, this will be gone in three weeks, right? (laughs) Um, But no, they actually saw that this was a fundamental opportunity to reset their work operating model and actually step back and ask the question of how do we use these challenges to create a much more inclusive culture, to create an opportunity uh, for a much more diverse pool of talent to align to our operating model. So it was such a massive change for them. Um, And uh, I think an example of how deconstruction allowed them to capture some of those objectives. Yeah, thank you, Robin. Yes, uh, I, I I saw, for example, the the, the example of Unilever on how uh, they really they they um, moved an entire uh, workforce of people from a fabric to do a completely different job uh, on sales, uh, no, using all this uh, flexible resource allocation and uh, upskilling people, no. But uh, so th- this can become a reality, and I think it already is. And it's coming more than ever with all the the force and speed uh, for the for the next years. So, Rabin, thank you very much for this interview. It has been amazing. Uh, as I started uh, the interview, it, it's an honor for me to have you in this program. I'm a I'm a follower. I'm a fan of your work, and I hope I have you in another in another interview soon. Thank you, Erica. It, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for such a lovely conversation. Thank you, Rabin. Yeah.